What's happening, Willow Creek? My name is Sean Williams, and I'm the one of the pastors around here. We're so excited that you chose to join us here this weekend. Uh, whether you're watching online around the country or whether you're part of one of our Willow locations, we want to say a very special welcome. I do want to say a very special shout out to our friends at uh, Willow Creek in Wheaton, uh, also South Barrington, Huntley, Crystal Lake, uh, South Lake, North Shore, and our friends in Chicago. It is so good to have the entire Willow family here together. You know, I think there's something deep inside of all of us that, that we want to be great. Like we want to be known for something. We want, to, we want our lives to matter. And so, you know, whether we want to be the biggest or the strongest or the fastest or the most efficient at something, there's something inside of all of us that we really want to be great. I think that's been true of me really throughout my entire life. But I remember this moment when I was a ninth grader. I was a freshman in high school. And I can really remember the feelings of just wanting to be great at something, but I didn't feel great at anything. I wasn't popular enough to run for student council. I wasn't smart enough to make any kind of academic team. Uh, I certainly wasn't athletic enough to be on the sports field, and I wasn't plump enough to be a sumo wrestler. Like, I, I really just wasn't really good at anything, but yet I still wanted to be great. I still wanted to be known for something. Now, I went to this high school that was really known for its theater program, and, and, and uh, specifically there was a spring production called the One Act Play, which was a traveling competition, and our school was historically really, really good when it came to its performances of this One Act Play. And so when it came to the play, in the cast, it was always made up of upperclassmen, and so I had never even thought about trying out for the One Act Play as a freshman. But nevertheless, I was sitting in a freshman level speech class when the theater director came in. She made a beeline for me at my desk and she said, hey, have you ever thought about trying out for the one act play? And I thought, no, there, there's never been a moment that I've even considered. I'm, I'm a freshman. I would never even make the one act play, much less I don't have any acting experience. I, I don't think I've got anything to offer. She said, well, I see something in you. And I, I want you to come and, and try out this afternoon. And she gave me the, the information associated with it. Well, I didn't really know what to do with it. Again, I, I had no acting background. I had never read a script in my life. But nevertheless, I show up at this tryout. Somebody hands me a script, and I just do my best to try to read the part. Now, I had no gauge to know how well I did. Again, uh, never done anything like it before, but, but, but felt like okay about it when I left the room. Well, a couple days pass and then becomes the moment that maybe you've seen in movies or maybe you've experienced it yourself, the moment where they post the piece of paper on the outside of the auditorium doors, letting you know who had made the, the cast of the play. Now, I thought about not even going to checking it. I thought there's, there's no way that, that, a, that a freshman, freshman never make the one act plays. I, I thought there was no way I was ever going to be cast, but I go to this sheet, I look and there it was. My name, Casper Apart. I was on top of the world. I felt like truly, I am the greatest. I don't know if a freshman's ever made this play and I might be the first. And I started feeling great about myself. I started feeling like, man, I, maybe I've actually arrived. Well, when it came time for the rehearsals, I showed up to the first rehearsal and it was actually there that I understand, uh, understood for the first time that the part that I was cast for. I was cast for the part of a nine-year-old boy and I came to discover that I was not cast for the part because of my stellar good looks or because even my acting ability. I was cast for the part because I was the only kid in my entire, entire high school that still resembled a nine-year-old kid. Uh, it was a total typecast. They figured out that they could teach me how to act. And so uh, maybe I wasn't as great as I thought I was after all. 
But again, I, I think there's something inside of all of us that, that we want to be great. We want to be known for something. We want our lives to really matter. We even talk about it in different arenas of our culture. You think about uh, what makes somebody great in the athletic arena. We even will throw around a term in athletics that we'll, we'll describe somebody as the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And we'll debate it. We'll say, is it LeBron or is it MJ? My friends... We live in Chicagoland, and the last dance has settled it. MJ is the greatest basketball player of all time. But we'll talk about, like, who's the greatest, right? But not just in the athletic arena. We think about other things that make someone great. Sometimes we feel like if somebody rises to a certain position of, of power and authority, that that makes them great. So maybe we would say that, that a CEO or a president of a company, you know, that, that person is, is great. Or sometimes we measure greatness by influence. And so if we have a great social media following, if we have lots of people who are followers or we get lots of comments or likes for a particular post, maybe we define greatness in those terms. Or maybe we define greatness in terms of what it means to be a great parent, that the greatness is experienced almost live vicariously through the success of our, our kids. We, we define greatness in so many different ways, but the question becomes, how does God define greatness? It's not the first time the question's been asked. I, I want to take us to a really powerful narrative of Jesus' interaction with a couple of his closest followers, his closest disciples. The story is recorded for us in the book of Matthew chapter 20. And so if you've got a Bible, you can turn to the book of Matthew chapter 20, or if you'd like to follow along, the words will show up on, on your screen as well. But in Matthew chapter 20, uh, we are uh, almost through three years of Jesus' ministry. Uh, so the disciples have been following him for three years. They've seen all that Jesus has done. They've seen his amazing miracles. They've, they've, they've listened to his compelling teaching. They believe that Jesus is the real deal. Uh, they're thinking to themselves that maybe he is this Messiah, the promised one, the one that God has sent to, to redeem our people. And, and there, there had to be an excitement and anticipation. They also know that they're on their way to Jerusalem. And it's just in 10 days that, that Jesus will ultimately surrender his life and be crucified. We're, we're 10 days away from the crucifixion when we get to the story in, in Matthew chapter 20. With this very intriguing interaction between Jesus and his disciples. But what we'll discover is this powerful principle. That if we really are somebody who wants to aspire to grace, we have to identify our own measure of greatness first. Here's the story for us. Matthew chapter 20, starting at verse 20, it says this. Then the mother of James and John, again, two of Jesus' closest followers, they were the sons of Zebedee, they, they came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What's your request? Jesus asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. It's intriguing. It's an intriguing question. It's, it's kind of interesting, and I find it actually pretty funny that James and John ask their mama to kind of do their dirty work when it comes to this request uh, of Jesus. It reminds me of, of a moment in my own journey. I've got two sons, Levi, who's 13, and, and Austin, who's now 10. But it was a few years ago, probably three or four years ago, they were a little bit younger, when I had them do a 5K race. Uh, I've gotten into running and, and I love doing races and I was doing a half marathon, but I talked my kids into running a 5K at the same race, at the same event. They were just going to do a little bit of a different distance. And I was so proud of both of them. They finished, they, they did really well and come to find out they actually finished first and second in their age group in the first race that they ever run. Now, I think there were only three kids in their age group in the race. Don't tell them that, but they were pretty excited about finishing first and second. But here's the challenge. 
There are these timing bracelets that are used to track to make sure you run the course and they, they hold your official time. And it's very important that each person is wearing their unique bracelet. But the challenge is we weren't really paying attention and we actually got my boy's bracelets backwards. And so Levi was wearing Austin's bracelet and Austin was wearing Levi's bracelet. Now that wouldn't be a very big deal, except for they finished first and second in the race. Now, as you would expect, my oldest son was a little quicker, a little stronger, a little faster. He actually finished first, but he was wearing Austin's band, which means as far as the official time was concerned, he crossed the finish line second. So when the awards ceremony came out, my oldest son was announced finishing second place and he was pretty excited until he heard the name of the first place finisher, which was his little brother whom he knew he had beat. And so I brought a picture of the moment to show you. This is a hilarious moment to me as a dad. It's my youngest son standing on the first place podium, so excited because he's never beat his brother at anything. And then it's the older brother standing on the second place podium looking with total confusion and truly utter disdain because he knew he had beaten his brother. Now, as this ceremony played out, again, it started with excitement with my oldest son, Levi, but it quickly turned very sour. And when the little award ceremony was done, he made a beeline to my wife, to his mom, and he was like, Mama, I deserve to be number one. And so he was trying to get my wife to go talk to the master of ceremonies to redo the entire ceremony because he believed he was the rightful person to be standing at the top of that platform. And it kind of was, it reminds me of the story how James and John, they asked their mama to come to Jesus to ask for kind of the number one and the number two position. Now, the reason behind this request is, again, they assumed that Jesus was the king. He was the Messiah. He was God's anointed one. And when he comes in the kingdom, they too want to be great because they see Jesus. And they see Jesus in his greatness. And their definition of greatness is tied to a certain position and having certain authority that in order for them to be great in their minds, they need to be in kind of the number one and the number two seats right alongside of Jesus. They need to kind of be his vice president and secretary of state, if you will. That was their own definition of greatness. The question becomes, how do you define greatness? How do I define greatness? Do I define it by power, authority, position, influence, wealth? How do you define greatness? You know, I think for me in my journey, I've often defined greatness by accomplishments. I feel like if I can accomplish things and achieve things and appear successful, that that's typically where I'll draw greatness. That's typically where I draw my worth. The challenge is, like, if you can't identify your own definition of greatness, you can't pivot and allow Jesus to redefine your perspective of greatness. Because not only do we need to identify how we define greatness, we need to really lean into Jesus because I believe he is one that wants to redefine how we even think about greatness and allow Jesus to redefine greatness. Let's, let's, let's go back to Matthew chapter 20. Here's how the story continues. It says, but Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. What a strange, strange response from Jesus. Again, James and John, their mom, they just come asking for a position of authority. And Jesus responds by saying, you don't know what you're asking. And then starts talking about this bitter cup of suffering. What in the world is Jesus getting at? What is he speaking to? 
In order to understand what he's speaking to, we need to understand a little bit of the cultural backdrop of, 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 of what's taking place at that particular time. Again, the disciples recognized Jesus as the Messiah. They, they, they knew that he was God's anointed one. The challenge is they had a misperception of what the Messiah was. You see, all throughout their, their nation's history, they had looked for and longed for the one that God was going to send to deliver their people. And they anticipated that deliverance to be a very physical, very political deliverance. Uh, really, for much of their nation's history, they had been an oppressed people. They had been a people who had been under the iron fist of, of, of groups like the Assyrians or the Babylonians. And now in Jesus' day, they're really under the iron fist of Rome. And if the Messiah was going to come onto the scene, all of Israel expected that that, that Messiah, they would, they would round up an army, that they would lead a revolt, that they would overthrow the oppressive rule, that they would establish their own nation with their own king, very politically, very physically, right there from Jerusalem. So James and John know that they're about to go to Jerusalem, and they know they're following the Messiah. They're just expecting when they get to Jerusalem that Jesus is going to form this army. They're going to pick up swords. They're going to beat the whoopee out of the Romans. And they're going to set up shop in their new kingship in this new kingdom. Well, Jesus was this Messiah that God promised. And Jesus was exactly who God predicted, but he was not who they expected. Jesus was going to Jerusalem, but he was not going to round up an army. And he was not going to politically overthrow the Romans. Instead, he was going to die a sacrificial death on a criminal's cross. You see, Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem, and there was going to be somebody on his right and another person on his left, but they would not be sitting on royal thrones. They were going to be dying on sacrificial crosses. And it's through Jesus' response that you get his redefinition of what greatness is all about. Greatness is not defined by power in authority, and position, and influence, and wealth. Instead, greatness is defined in terms of humility, love, service, and sacrifice. Greatness is not defined by royal thrones. Greatness is defined by sacrificial crosses. And in a sense, Jesus flips upside down the paradigm of what greatness is all about, and he calls his followers to live not by the paradigm of the culture in which we live and how it defines greatness, but instead adopt a brand new paradigm as Jesus redefines what greatness is all about. And so if we understand the measure we currently use and we allow Jesus to redefine our picture and our perspective of greatness, the third piece is this, that we have to commit ourselves to what I would say serve our way to the top. That you commit to serve your way to the top. Let's, let's see how the, the story concludes. It, it says this next. It says, When the other ten disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of this world lord it over people. And officials flaunt their authority over them. That's what, that's what this world does with greatness. It, it uses position authority and it kind of flaunts it over everybody else. In other words, like... The paradigm of this world is greatness is measured by how many people serve you. But here's what Jesus says. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
in many ways, Jesus flips the paradigm completely upside down. I, I brought a prop that's kind of helpful for me to think about it. Like, I think in, in terms of this, this is a picture of just about every organization that exists in our world. Almost every organization that exists in our world that there is somebody on top, and typically this person is seen as the greatest because of the position they hold. Whether this is the CEO of the company, the coach of a team, the parent of a family, right? Uh, every organization in our world looks like this, and we assume that the person on top is the greatest. And we live by this paradigm, and we kind of think to ourselves that everybody else in the organization exists to serve this individual. And Jesus says, may it not be with my followers. Instead, whoever is first among you must become last. The greatness is not defined by how many people serve you. Greatness is defined by how many people you're willing to serve. Whether you're the coach of a team, a leader in your business, a parent of your family, that greatness is not measured by how many people serve you. Greatness is measured by how many people you're willing to serve. Now, the greatest thing about Jesus' paradigm is there's really good news in this. Here, here's the first piece of really good news. If that's the true definition of greatness, here's what this means. Anyone can be great. In other words, I don't have to have a position to be great. I don't have to have influence. I don't have to have a high school diploma. I don't have to have all the accolades I just have to have a heart that's humble enough and willing enough to serve. Because greatness is marked by and it's defined by humility, love, and sacrifice. If I'm a leader, God has actually called me to be a servant leader. Uh, there's a pastor friend of mine who recently said, and I love this, he said, I, I, I hope that in 10, 20 years, that we don't talk about anything other than servant leadership because no other type of leadership exists. Jesus' paradigm of leadership is completely different. And the way that Jesus thinks about leadership, here's kind of the second impl implication, is if I do have a position, there, there's nothing wrong with having a position, no, nothing wrong with being the head coach or, or being the president of the company. That actually could be a very significant blessing in yourself and potentially you're there because God has placed you there for a very particular reason. But if you find yourself with position, what we need to understand is the position itself doesn't make me great. It's what I do with the position that can lead to greatness. And so if you are the president of a company or if you hold a high position, many times what people do is they'll push other people down to lift themselves up. Instead, Jesus says, be willing to push yourself down in order to lift everyone else up. That's his paradigm. And so if you have position, what would it look like to use that position in practical ways? So instead of pushing others down to lift myself up, I'll push myself down to lift other people up by, maybe you, you, you mentor a young person and you give them opportunity that they would never be able to have if we're not given to them by you. Or maybe, you know, sometimes we'll talk in our, in, in our paradigm and we'll think, man, I need to be the voice for the voiceless. But then we come to understand, you know, I don't think there's such a thing as the voiceless. Sometimes I just like to be in power and in control and I'm just not willing to give somebody else the microphone. And really being the voice for the voiceless means I just allow somebody else to share their voice. 
And I'm willing to humble myself and give somebody else the microphone and let somebody else share a perspective, even if the perspective is different than mine. We are not called to be served. We are called to serve. Greatness is not defined by how many people serve you. Greatness is defined by how many people you're willing to serve. But here's the coolest part of this paradigm. That one day, God is going to flip it right side up again. It is the example of Jesus. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture comes from the book of Philippians chapter 2. It talks about Jesus. It talks about this paradigm that he embodied, the, the example he let out for us. Here's what Philippians 2 says. It says, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance of as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And he gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's what's true about Jesus. Though he had all the position, though he had all the authority, he chose to become the servant. And those who serve the most in this life become exalted the most in the next life. It is the paradigm, the example, the model of our Lord in Jesus Christ. And the same that played out in Jesus' life, those who follow him will receive the same reward. Those who are willing to give in secret when no one else is watching. Those who don't need all the accolades for all the different accomplishments. Those who are willing to give of themselves, to push themselves down for the sake of others. Those who are willing to humble themselves in this life will be honored the most in the next. My prayer for myself, my prayer for you and for our entire community, is that we would no longer define greatness in terms of authority or power or position or influence. It's not measured in how perfect our kids are. It's measured by the paradigm in the grid and the filter that God has given us. Let the first be last and the last be first. Greatness is not measured by competition. It's measured by compassion. It's measured by love, by grace, by humility, and by sacrifice, may your life, may my life, be marked with the greatness of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful. We're so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful for the example he led out in front of us. And Father, sometimes we have a mixed paradigm of what greatness is all about. But Father, I just ask that we would allow you to redefine that in our lives. That, God, we wouldn't claw our way to the top. We wouldn't push others down so that we could get ahead. But, God, we'd be willing to take a very humble posture. And, God, even in a position, we'd be able to push ourselves down in order to serve everybody else around us. God, give us the heart of Christ. We love you. We say thanks to you. We pray that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.